Hello and welcome to Monocle 24's The Urbanist, the show all about the cities we live in. I'm Andrew Tuck. Coming up on today's programme. <laughs> Clapping. A simple gesture repeated from balconies, rooftops and windows across the world to support those on the front lines of this pandemic. But this simple act is also a powerful reminder of how we're all in this together and a welcome relief from the silent streets of our lockdown cities. This week, we bring you more stories of perseverance and kindness, good neighbours and companies all helping us weather the storm together. So join me over the next 30 minutes right here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. Last week, we started this show by telling you how in times of crisis, people tend to look for the silver lining. And yet how, when it comes to, say, climate change and coronavirus, it might not all be that straightforward. Well, this week, we wanted to bring you some real simple stories of silver linings, positive and even surprising stories emerging from this unprecedented situation. We're going to start in Brazil, where more than half of the country's top football clubs have handed over their stadia to health authorities to turn them into field hospitals and clinics to fight the coronavirus pandemic. Monocle's Latin America affairs correspondent, Lucinda Elliott, has this report. Football is closer to a religious ritual in a country like Brazil. So when stadiums were called to close but churches allowed to remain open to stop the spread of the coronavirus, there was a lot of tension around dinner tables. Even the Brazilian president, Jair Bolsonaro, an avid Palmeiras supporter, earlier this month wasn't convinced about putting an end to the beautiful game. But as the number of cases steadily rises in Brazil and fatalities hit the hundreds for the first time, football clubs across the country are handing over their now-closed facilities to medical staff. More than half of the 20 teams in the Brazilian Premier League, the A-Series, in densely populated cities of São Paulo and Rio de Janeiro, are opening up their doors to make room for hospital beds during the outbreak. The emblematic Maracanã Stadium here in Rio, home to the current South America champions, has taken the lead. Flamengo club president, Rodolfo Landin, saying how important it was to help relieve the pressure on public services and ensure the protection of the elderly and most vulnerable. Health Ministry officials have warned that the Brazilian system simply cannot cope should the number of infections escalate. And last week, the first confirmed case of COVID-19 was reported in the city's sprawling and unmapped shantytowns. While football may no longer be brought to their television screens in coming weeks, there's a hope that the sport can offer a different kind of support to its fans. For Monocle, in Rio, I'm Lucinda Elliott. From football to the big screen. The drive-in cinema is a relic of a bygone era, but the format experienced something of a resurrection in recent weeks thanks to social distancing measures imposed to slow coronavirus's spread. With most cinemas shut, American cinephiles have flocked to the outdoor cinemas to watch films from inside the relative safety of their own vehicles. Monocle's Will Kitchens explores the format's fleeting boom and where it might be headed. A silver lining is embedded in most tragedies, however difficult it might be to find. For the silver screen industry, 
It has been found in recent weeks in the revival of a largely forgotten film format, the drive-in cinema. While traditional cinemas, in shopping malls and on high streets alike, have temporarily closed in an effort to slow coronavirus' spread, Americans have hopped in their cars and headed to the huge outdoor screens that loom high above dirt parking lots. Come showtime, entrance tickets are displayed by drivers through tightly shut windows, and, in a reversal of long-held policy, popcorn is allowed to be brought from home. This is a pandemic, after all. Up until a few weeks ago, drive-ins relied on selling novelty or a sense of nostalgia for the 1950s, which was the industry's height. But now, during a pandemic, drive-ins have emerged as the only way to watch a film outside of one's home, a twist on the cinema-going experience that technically observes social distancing rules. Each car acts as a self-contained pod that's protected from the pandemic outside. The drive-in format began in the 1930s, although it's most associated with the 1950s, in a society that, following the Second World War, was drunk on the automobile. This was the era of car-centric city building that spawned the endless parking lots and urban freeways that bisected our cities, the very wounds that our urban planners have been trying to mend ever since. While some 4,000 drive-in screens peppered the U.S. during the 1950s, just 549 remain today. The format has been in decline since the 1970s due to a host of reasons. That includes the rise of home video, but also rising property values that saw the plots of land driving sat on get bought up to house more lucrative developments. Global oil crises also saw gas prices spike, and as driving became more costly, cars in an effort to be more fuel efficient shrank. Spacious back seats gave way to cramped knee-folding interiors that weren't suited to watching films from start to finish. But for those drive-ins that do remain, the ongoing pandemic has spurred a mini-boom in business. According to the Los Angeles Times, the Paramount Drive-In in Paramount, California, has reported ticket sales double what they typically sell at this time of year. Theaters in Texas, Alabama, and even South Korea have reported healthy increases in ticket sales too. While only some 5-10% to 10% of the U.S.'s total drive-in cinemas are open during the month of March, it is a seasonal business after all. Some cinemas even tried to open early to seize the moment. But as John Vincent, the president of the United Drive-In Theaters Owners Association, noted via email, that moment may already have passed. As more stringent distancing restrictions have swept across much of the U.S., many of the theaters that were reporting booming ticket sales have since shut. And so, drive-in cinema's return to center stage appears to have been brief, just a few images in a fast-moving film reel. So where does the drive-in industry go from here? That's unclear. Its future remains complicated by declining car ownership rates and a generation of young people who are proving more reluctant than ever to get behind the wheel. That trend speaks to a broader shift in society as we try to ease ourselves off of private car ownership in favor of other modes of more sustainable transport. But the strange thing about a pandemic is that it flips much of what we know upside down. Things that we've long been told to value about our cities, like urban density, have in an instant become dangers, and cities everywhere have seen their public transit ridership numbers fall off of a cliff. Pandemics shape the societies that follow in both expected and unexpected ways, 
And might the ongoing pandemic lead us to reevaluate our pursuit of urban density and our abandonment of private cars? As Joel Kodkin writes in the Washington Post, pandemics have always been the enemy of dense urban life. Kodkin predicts that fear of future pandemics will push people back into cars and out from cities. So, when social distancing restrictions are loosened, it's possible that cinephiles remain anxious to return to regular cinemas, and so perhaps the drive-in will hold some new appeal in a post-coronavirus world. As Alex Bozikovich, architecture critic at The Globe and Mail, writes, There will come a time when COVID-19 is under control, and when public health officials tell us it's safe to go out again. But we'll need to choose to do so. If we don't do that, the effects of the coronavirus could be with us for years and decades to come. The marks of the virus would be more highways and more houses, fenced off from each other and scattered apart, a landscape that's alive but not entirely healthy. While drive-in cinema's brief moment in the sun is a warm, feel-good story during an unsteady and uncertain time, if they become more popular in the future, it may also speak to a scary future possibility, where we have abandoned public space and public transit as part of a retreat into a world again where everything is dictated and defined and designed around the automobile, all part of a quest for isolation, which we might understandably but misguidedly equate with safety. That, I suspect, would be a fool's errand. While New York has struggled against coronavirus for a host of reasons, dense cities like Taipei and Singapore managed much better. Instead, we need to strengthen our public health systems, better our supply chains, and reconsider how to design aspects of our cities and public spaces to mitigate the risks posed by a future pandemic. But moreover, improving urban density is a key pillar in combating the most pressing issue facing humanity on a macro scale. Not pandemic, but climate crisis. So, while I hope drive-in theaters remain a robust niche industry, I hope that the revival, however brief, is an important of things to come, of a retreat from public space and public transit, but an embrace of something fun and nostalgic at a moment when we need it most. As John Vincent again said, we all want life to return to normal as quickly as possible, with people doing their favorite things together, like going to restaurants, indoor movies, and, of course, drive-ins. For Monocle in Toronto, I'm Will Kitchens. Now, one of the many apps on my phone is Nextdoor. I usually check it to see what's happening in my neighbourhood or if someone is trying to part ways with a nice piece of furniture or needs help with their garden. But in recent weeks, I've noticed how these messages have shifted from an exchange of goods and services to people volunteering to help out those in self-isolation and how it has helped boost a community feeling without any of us leaving the home. Well, I wanted to know if this was just me or if the lockdown has meant more significant changes for the app. So I decided to speak with Nick Lisher, who's the head of Europe, the Middle East and Africa for Nextdoor. And he started by telling me about what Nextdoor is all about. So the purpose of Nextdoor is to cultivate a kinder world where everyone has a neighbourhood they can rely on, which is, as you can agree, quite an um, ambitious purpose. But underneath all that, the way I explain it to people really is, imagine you had an app which you could open and you could know that a great deal of people who lived on your street were using it. And it's not for the people who live 10 miles away in a different town. It's not for your friends or your family members. It's just 
for your neighborhood. And really what that gives you access to is it gives you access to frame the discussion that you're having on this social media around your local area. And that could be used in a number of different things where it's sharing safety information or finding a home for a kid's bike that someone's grown out of. There's a lot of utilitarian uses for Nextdoor, but I think at the moment we're seeing that people are coming together and really showing a lot of affinity within their neighbourhood as well. And just tell me, it is an app, so is it operational in kind of every country around the world? And it doesn't feel like there's anybody in charge of it when you're on there, but is there something in the background that means that it is in some way kind of there is some oversight of what happens? We have neighbourhoods covering a great deal of Western Europe. So we have the United Kingdom, France, Italy, Spain, the Netherlands, Denmark, Sweden and Germany. And then we're live in Canada, the United States, where the app was founded and Australia, too. We're not live everywhere. Unlike some social media, it's reasonably tricky for us to simply change the interface language and go into a new country. We need to um, understand the local customs, understand the way local boundaries work. So getting next door started in the country is quite a kind of long and convoluted process, but something that the more we invest in understanding local community, the more we understanding Milanese communities and how they work versus, you know, Dutch communities and how they work versus, you know, communities in Bloomsbury in London, the better that the app works. People seem to be very pretty well behaved on there. I don't you don't see shout, <laughs> calling people out yeah. and you don't see swearing. I mean, you know, I've never seen anything untoward on there. And I wondered how is it self-policing or are you policing a little bit in the background? Well, maybe this is the wonderfully polite neighbourly people of Bloomsbury. Um, but, um, but, I'm not but, sure um, it's, it's a good question. Listen, I, I've been working in online communities for most of my 20-year career. And one of the things that I'm personally fascinated with is the rules of engagement of how people connect online. And there are a couple of things in the way that Nextdoor works that hopefully encourage people to be kind and people not to behave in a way that's callous. And the first of that is that we verify all members. And so we verify your name and address, and we want to know that you actually live in Bloomsbury, that you don't actually live in Maida Vale, or you don't actually live out in Walthamstow. The Bloomsbury community is just for people who live in Bloomsbury. That's a really, really important kind of rule of engagement because you might not notice it, but you feel when you open the app and you chat to people that you're chatting to only people who live where you live. And this creates a sense of community and belonging in a way that people don't want to treat it like the open internet, like they might go and you know express a partisan opinion or they might express how annoyed they are with a decision that's made by a governmental body or a politician. Really, the rules of engagement of Nextdoor, the setup with which you're talking to verified neighbours using your real name, it encourages people to be thoughtful about the way that they interact with each other, as they would. A good analogy here would be, you know, a town hall meetup in Bloomsbury Town Hall or, you know, where I live in Kent, you know, people getting together and discussing perhaps the plans for the council. You wouldn't necessarily find people randomly trolling each other in an event like that. And similarly, when people are discussing their neighbourhood and people are verified within their neighbourhood, we find that generally, thank goodness, people tend to behave in a way that is in the first instance kind and in the second instance helpful. When I looked on the app, within days of the coronavirus outbreak changing life patterns here in the city, and I looked at my local division of Nextdoor, it was interesting to see 
within days, people were saying, I've got a car. If you can't get out to get food, I'm happy to go and do your shopping. If you need medicine collected, I'll go and do that. And also interesting that people were willing to ask for help as well. So people saying, my sister has cancer. I can't get to her home, but she needs food delivered. It was amazing how quickly that happened. Were you surprised yourself as you looked at all these communities, how quickly people stepped forward? It's something that we've seen before on a different scale. Certainly during severe weather events in the United States, it's something that we've seen in terms of when you reach an event where the neighborhood suddenly becomes very important, that people are willing to to change their outlook and to bring help and kindness where they might not have had time to do so before. You know, I personally, I've spent, you know, <laughs> as I'm sure you have, I've spent more time in my neighborhood over the past three weeks than I ever have. And the connections I have here have become so much more important in terms of simply in the first instance, information, knowing which of the shops are still open in town and which have a certain amount of supplies. And by having neighbours collaborate on that topic on Nextdoor, as opposed to kind of selfishly hoard that information, we get to a better place as a community. But the really interesting bit that you pointed out there was people putting their hand up and saying, I can help, I want to help or I need help. And I think that's something that we saw very quickly start to happen at the very beginnings of the outbreak. And it's something that we've tried to, in the first instance, encourage. And in the second instance, really kind of try to build products around encouraging people to help. And so within, you know, for example, within the first week of the lockdown, we saw we have a feature called groups where you can create a cross neighborhood group. We saw 15 times more groups created in that week than we would in a normal week. And they were mostly called things like coronavirus support group or local help or things along those lines. And for us, that was great because we saw that people were firstly taking to a new feature and secondly, really using the power of being able to connect with each other locally with people that they didn't know, really using that power to go, okay, how can I help? And how can we all support each other within the neighborhood? And tell me, it's just a snapshot of humanity. Have you felt this heartwarming? Do you think that people are actually kind of kind, that they're nice people out there? Yes, I think I, I'm, I'm an optimist when it comes to that sort of stuff. I think you have to be to work for an app like Nextdoor. And ultimately, you know, we, we launched a feature at the end of last week called the Help Map. And really, that was the next extension of what, what we saw happening with the groups, which was, OK, we've got a lot of people here who are offering help and a lot of people are asking for help. We need to kind of codify this in a way so it's easy to find for new people coming in who are either offering or asking. So we use the map technology, which is kind of central within Nextdoor, and we allowed people to say, yes, I, I, here are some things I could help with. And that allowed someone new joining to go in and say, okay, well, I'm going to look for someone who's close to me. And yes, they can help me pick up my description. Wonderful. And the usage of the help map is thousands of people across London are entering their details and saying, yes, I can help with things. That outpouring of kindness and support is really tremendous. And it's horrible that we've had to go through such a situation to get us there. But I think ultimately, when something happens like this, people do look to their neighbourhoods and they do look to think about, well, what can I do personally to help? And just tell me, you, know, you said that more groups have been founded, but are you just finding usage of the app and the total number of people subscribe? You've just seen an uptick in general? Sure. So on a daily basis, we have nearly twice as many people using the app every day 
during the lockdown phase than we've had previously. And I think what's happened there is people have become far more interested and focused on what's happening locally. We have you know, a, a wonderful set of apps to stay in touch with what's happening in the news, with our friends, with famous people whose opinions we care about. We have a fantastic set of social media to kind of look into those things and find out what's happening. We have local news websites. We have you know, local pages on other social media. But Nextdoor is really the place that people have gone to to find out what each other is doing to find out what's happening on their street, to find out what's happening with their local businesses, to find what's happening with the schools, to be able to connect with teachers, to be able to connect with important people who may you know, work in local government, who may work at the library, et cetera. That kind of information dissemination has become vital to people. And then really it's about responding to the uptick in help that you noted. You know, we've got people offering local business support, people doing phone calls for the lonely, people offering care for the elderly and vulnerable. You know, I was lucky enough to chat to a a gentleman called Neil who lives near you in North London. He lives just by the Arsenal Stadium. And, you know, I spoke to him just before we introduced the increase in lockdown measures. So about three and a half weeks ago. And, you know, Neil had during the first couple of weeks, he'd already done 10 grocery pickups for neighbours that he didn't know. And he just saw this as an opportunity to really, really give something back. And as soon as Niels does something like that, I think it's infectious. You know, as soon as you see someone else offering help like that. And so I think that's that's really what's kind of contributed to this doubling in daily activity. And I think it's just fascinating that, you know, for many of us, we're worried about community vanishing at this time. But in fact, digital is a complicated thing for many older people. But actually, this app seems to be used by cross-generations. I get a sense that people have found a community online via the app, even if they didn't really kind of know it was there. The community is a powerful thing that we tap into when we need it and we allow it to glide on in the background when we don't need it. But it is there. And I think you're doing some really great work. Nick, thank you so much for joining us on The Urban. It's super interesting to talk to you. And thank you for all the work that you're doing. Thank you so much, Andrew. We just hope that, you know, people can use Nextdoor to really help each other during this time and stay safe, stay healthy. Across the world, many supermarkets and grocery stores have implemented the so-called grey hour or silver hour dedicated to the elderly to limit their potential exposure to the virus and infection. It's usually the first hour of opening when shelves are fully stocked and the stores are being scrubbed clean. Monocle's Fernando Augusto Pacheco has more on this story. It's been interesting to see how society had to adapt so quickly to the coronavirus outbreak. And that, of course, includes supermarkets implementing their grey hours, which means an exclusive hour where only the elderly can do their shopping. It's a brilliant decision and necessary. When the outbreak began, I already could see the scared faces of the elderly trying to pick up their shopping, but not managing to compete with those eager stockpilers. Although there were many of them, I do believe that society is inherently kind in its majority, and the backlash was swift and measures were taken. I am fortunate enough to still have two grandmothers and a grandfather, and I check with them as often as I can now. One of my grandmothers, although a little bit more than 90, still makes sure to visit her local butcher, with all the social distancing required, of course. 
Although, in many cities of my home country, Brazil, she might have to stop going to church or walking too much. There are measures to find the elderly if they leave the house. It is heartwarming to see that measures, such as grey hours, are becoming global, from New Zealand to Brazil, UK to France. Society is indeed caring about the most vulnerable. Although I'm not quite sure my grandma would like to be classified as that. Maybe with all their amazing and rich life stories, it's just fair enough our elderly populations have a special hour for themselves to grab the food they need. For Monaco, I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And finally today, a story that broke the silence of our collective lockdown. Last Thursday, at 2000 hours, as in many countries across Europe, people in the UK were asked to come to their windows and clap to show appreciation for all that their healthcare workers are doing and enduring. A simple gesture that moved many of us and brought life to the quiet streets for a couple of minutes once again. Monocle's own Venetia Rainey has more on this. Let's have a listen. Last week, the UK became the latest European country to join in with a deceptively simple show of solidarity with coronavirus frontline medical workers. Clapping. This was the scene in Hoxton, East London. Whether you were on your front step, hanging out of a window or out in your garden, at 2000 last Thursday you probably heard the sound of applause, plus a bit of whistling and whooping. It probably made your skin tingle a little. It might have brought a tear to your eye. This is how it sounded south of the river in London, in Hearn Hill. A similar thing happened a few weeks ago in Athens, where I'm currently based. My now almost silent street erupted into a welcome few minutes of joyful noise as everyone took to their balconies to show their appreciation. It was surreal and very beautiful. The Clap for Our Carers social media campaign in the UK was started by a Dutch Londoner who heard about it happening in the Netherlands and decided to organise something similar. But it actually started in Italy and Spain back on March 15th and has since spread across the whole continent, everywhere from Bulgaria to Portugal to Switzerland. In Paris, it's now a nightly event. Let's hope the habit sticks. Not only is it great to show our support for those working to keep us safe, it's also a much-needed reminder for everyone stuck at home that they are surrounded by people going through exactly the same thing. For Monocle in Athens, I'm Venetia Rainey. Well, I guess every week at the moment feels like a month, like many months. So much happens within a week. And I think that for many cities on lockdown around the world, that early kind of unease and nervousness and maybe a little bit of panic in places as well has begun to settle down. We're beginning to find routines. We're beginning to find our ways through this. And we've had time perhaps in the last week to look out our windows to see what's happening to our neighbours and our friends and begin to think about what they need now. Often we're not allowed to go and hang out with those people. We can't congregate. But simple things like apps and community message boards have begun to function in, in really interesting ways. We know that we live in communities, but often we don't feel it on a day-to-day -day basis. We're, we're in too much of a hurry. We're 
we're rushing to get on the subway, we're late for an appointment, we've got to get on our bikes and head off to work. But when you pause and when you think about things a bit more, you, you see this community emerging. I've talked here over the last couple of weeks about my situation. I, I live right in the heart of the city. And there are positive things that have emerged from this. You know, We have a an elderly neighbour who shouldn't be judged on age. Believe me, he has a better social life than I do and is normally off gallivanting to the, the theatre and knows lots of people, but is stuck at home. And that fear of having to go to the supermarket to get food, we've taken over his food order. We're helping make sure that he has a newspaper, that he has contact. We phone him every day. And that is being repeated by, I think, everyone I know in London has connected with neighbours to see what they need. And these things, of course, we hope will endure after this terrible pandemic. But we all need these little acts of kindness and they mean a lot. Even now, I have a dog who has to be walked and you're some distance from people across the pavement or you find yourself walking in the road to dodge, getting too close to people to stop them feeling uncomfortable. But still, there's a lot more waving going on, a lot more smiles. And even when you're just a few of you on the street, you again feel this notion of kindness bubbling up. I think we all have some tough weeks ahead. We'll be checking with our correspondents and hearing what's happening in their parts of the world over the coming weeks. But as ever, from the team here at The Urbanist, we hope you're all finding your own patterns through this. We're thinking of you. We like telling your stories here on the show. And we'll be back next week with more. Stay safe. That's all for this edition of The Urbanist. Today's episode was produced by Carlotta Ribello and David Stevens, and David also edited the show. And to play you out of this week's episode, here's Bill Withers with Lean On Me. Thank you for listening, city lovers. Lean on me when you're not strong And I'll be your friend I'll help you I'm going